you remain standing for the reading of the word this morning? It comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, I don't know if any of you have, have seen this show. I'm not like recommending it or anything like that, but it gets to where I want to go this morning. Uh, it's a show called The Masked Singer. All right, this, this show, The Masked Singer, um, uh, the title uh, basically tells you everything that you want to know about the show. Uh, they take celebrities, relatively fame, uh, they take celebrities, and, uh, and they put them in masks and outfits that hide their identity, and then they sing songs, and then people try and guess who the celebrity is, hence the name The Masked Singer. So they're masked as they sing. And uh, there's a panel of judges who try and figure out, you know, who's singing the songs. But the reality is they couldn't figure it out without some clues. And so every episode they show some clues about who these singers can be. And then they allow them to sing and then people, people guess. And it's always interesting when you watch a show like that, when somebody's identity is hidden, you know, all the different um, guesses that, that people make, because you just don't know. Until the mask comes off, until it's revealed, you don't know who it's going to be. Well, I was thinking about that show in relation to what we're studying here in Luke, and you're like, how are you going to make this connection? You'll see. <laughs> you know, we've been talking about, as we began our study in the Gospel of Luke, that the Gospel of Luke is all about revealing to us who Jesus Christ really is. Who Jesus really is. Not who we think him to be, but who is he really. And the first part here in the Gospel of Luke, we saw even last week, was there were a lot of prophecies made about Jesus before he came. A lot of clues, if you will, as to who the identity of the Messiah, the Redeemer of Israel, would be. And so for hundreds, thousands of years, people were trying to guess Jews were trying to figure out, who, who is going to be the Redeemer? We, we see all the predictions, we see all the prophecies, but, but who is he going to be? And so they were waiting, they were waiting, they were waiting. They could follow the clues, they could make guesses. In fact, false messiahs rised up and claimed that they were the true messiah, and they fell to the wayside. And so, so there's this period where Israel has been just anticipating who the messiah is going to be. Well, when we come to our study in the Gospel of Luke, and especially the passage that we come to today, this is going to be the first time in Luke's Gospel where the clues are all done. There's, there's no more guessing at who the Messiah is going to be, or even who Jesus Christ is. For the first time in Luke's Gospel, the passage that we're looking at today is a passage that's going to clearly articulate for us who Jesus Christ is and who we should understand him to be. The sad thing for me as I read a passage like this is that as God reveals to us who Jesus Christ is and what he's the fulfillment of, that sadly, even still to this day, some Jewish people are still waiting. They're anticipating a Messiah who has already come. And for us as a church, I don't ever want that to be the case. I want us to clearly know the Messiah has come, the Redeemer has come, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at this today. We're going to look at a passage that typically is preached around Christmas time. You probably heard it. It's a passage that for us can be very, very familiar 
But as I always like to say, just because something is familiar doesn't mean it's not spectacular. And so we're going to make our way through this narrative, this, this story, and it begins in verse 26. Are you ready for this? You ready to learn and grow? Let's come to a passage that you've probably heard before, but let's have eyes and ears open to hear what God has for us. <clears throat> it starts in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was what? Mary. All right. Is this passage a little bit familiar? Have you... Have you Heard these verses before? Probably, if you've been around a church during Christmas time. But I'm actually glad that we're preaching this passage not close to the Christmas season as such because um, it's good to just let it hit us as it should hit us apart from all of the things that we tie to the Christmas event. But the story begins, if you will, this, this narrative that we're reading today begins with introducing us to the messenger, that there's a messenger that is coming. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee. And so we have this, this messenger that is delivering a message. And if you were with us last week, we should be a little bit familiar with this messenger, Gabriel. This is a supernatural being. This is a angel. This is not a human being. This is someone who has been sent from, from God. And we knew from last week he came first to who? He came first to Zechariah to tell him about the birth of his son who would be named John. And this week we see him being sent to this woman named Mary who we're going to talk about in more detail in just a moment. But I think there's some important things for us to know about Gabriel and the fact that his name is mentioned here. The first thing that I want you to notice is it says that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. Now, what is the sixth month? Well, it's not... It's not the calendar month that we're talking about. Later at the end of the story, we'll discover the sixth month is in reference to the story right before this, and that is the pregnancy of Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth. Gabriel had first come to Zechariah and said, you're going to have a son, and he is going to be the forerunner for the Messiah. And so your wife, Elizabeth, who's really old, and you're really old, you're going to have this son. And so this story is picking up six months after that's happened. Are, are you following with me? So that's what's being talked about here. So Gabriel first went to Zechariah, and now he's going to, to Mary. And it's important for us to know about Gabriel that he and another angel named Michael are the only two angels named in the Bible. I mean, angels are referenced, but the actual name of an angel that are mentioned are only Gabriel here and and Michael. Why is that important? Well, thank you so much for asking. Why it's important is this. Luke's gospel is starting and saying, I don't want you to think that the New Testament and the story of Jesus' life is somehow disconnected from what God had done previously. See, the last time Gabriel was ever mentioned in the scriptures was in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, when he was sent by God to Daniel to reveal a message from God to, to Daniel. And so if you were a Jew reading this, or even if you were someone like us, a Gentile who was reading this but knew that the Old Testament existed, you would see that, oh my goodness, the angel Gabriel is connecting me to the God of the Old Testament and the message of the Old Testament. That's why Gabriel's presence and Gabriel being named is so important to us is because the story of Jesus isn't disconnected from what God did in the past, but is actually the fulfillment of what God promised in the past. The other thing that we can consider here is, you know, God could have sent a prophet. That means he could have sent a human being who received a message from God to speak to Mary, the message that he has, but instead 
he sends this supernatural being, this angel. And I've kind of wondered, and this is just speculation, but why does he do that? Why didn't he just send a prophet to come to Mary and to say, this is who your son will be? And, and I think it's because, well, the supernatural element is we're going to see in the text of who Jesus Christ is. That the declaration of his birth and the declaration of his life by this angelic supernatural being is to cement the fact for us that what happens in and around Jesus' life and who he is is something absolutely extraordinary. And so let's continue on in the story. While the events and the messenger are extraordinary, verse 26 tells us one more thing that I think is important. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now this little detail, to you and me, we can just read past it, but I want you to see that not only are we identified with who the messenger is, but we're identified with where he was sent. Gabriel was sent to the city of Nazareth. But do you see how it's referenced in the text? Church, this is really, really important. It says that he was sent to the region of Galilee, to a city in Galilee, the city of, of Nazareth. Now, that might not seem significant to you, but, but it's significant to us for a couple of reasons. First, when you read Luke's gospel, over and over again, he is grounding the life of Jesus in time and in place. He continually wants us to know that these are real events and they happen in real places. And this little detail, the way he talks about Nazareth, just reaffirms for us how serious Luke is for us as the readers of this to, to buy into and to know the fact that he's recording history. Because he doesn't say the angel was sent to the city of Nazareth. He says he was sent to a city in the region of Galilee called Nazareth. Do you know why that is? Well, he tells us that the city of Nazareth was in Galilee for the same reason that I tell people that I'm from San Diego and not from Valley Center when I'm out of town, <clears throat> right? Nobody knows where Valley Center is. People know where San Diego is, and so rather than get into a deep conversation, you know, I'll be just, where are you from? I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm from, you know, San Diego, you know, and then if I feel like they want to know more, then I'll be like, actually from, you know, northeast San Diego, a place called, called Valley Center. You see, because Nazareth, it was this place of little to no significance in the time of Jesus. It was so small that Luke said, I got to tell you first the region it exists in before I can actually tell you where the city is. Because if people reading this tried to find Nazareth on a map or to ask people about it, it was of so little significance that most people couldn't have found it on a map. It was so much like Valley Center, it's not even funny. I want to show you a picture of, of Israel at this time. And just to give you a sense of, of how we could actually relate to this story. So there's Nazareth. It's, it's up there. It's in the north of, of Israel. It's in the region of Galilee. It's, a lot of people think of Galilee and they think of the Sea of Galilee. But Nazareth wasn't actually that close to the Sea of Galilee. What was so unique about Nazareth was that, or I should say why it was so insignificant, was it was not by any kind of a major traveling artery. Okay, there were traveling highways at that time all throughout Israel that connected the coast to inland to the Jordan Valley, which ran right down uh, the middle. But Nazareth was so much like Valley Center, it was kind of up on a hill and it was removed from any of the main highways. So to get to Nazareth was like trying to get to Valley Center. We all know where they're, you know, the 15 is, right? To get from the 15 to Valley Center, you're coming up Lilac or you're coming up the grade, right? You're, you're, you have to get up into Valley Center. It's not necessarily easy. To leave Valley Center, to get to someplace, it can take, you know, 15, 20, 25 minutes. The same thing with Nazareth. It was of so little significance that it's never mentioned once in the Old Testament, 
okay? It's never once mentioned in the Jewish Talmud, the, the Jewish religious writings. And the historian Josephus, who recorded the history of the Jewish people, he doesn't even record it in his writings. So, so you follow with me? This is how insignificant. It was so insignificant that up until really the 1900s, secular scholars actually doubted the Jesus story because there was hardly any archaeological evidence that proved that Nazareth was a place. They're like, oh, Mary was from Nazareth. Very convenient since we don't know anything about it. Since that time, it's been proven and we know that Nazareth was a town, but it was tiny. It was tiny. It was a place of little significance. So the first time Gabriel goes somewhere, it's to the temple in Jerusalem. That's where the story of Luke begins. The next time that he's sent as a messenger, it's to this place in Nazareth. And so your ears and my ears should perk up. We're like, why is he going there? Is there someone special there? Is there someone significant there? Well, the text goes on. Let's look at this. It goes on in verse 26. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to, the city of, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was what? Mary. So here you go. Here's the recipient. Here is who Gabriel was sent to. First, he was sent to a priest in Jerusalem. Now, he's going to the city of little significance to this, to this woman named Mary. And from the text, we actually learn a lot about Mary. There's a lot that we're told about her. Verse 26, because she's from Nazareth, we know that she's a small town girl. She's a small town girl. She's from Nazareth, so she's at this place of little significance. You know, it's not in a major highway or anything like that. And so whoever Mary is, we know this is where she grew up. And so there's nothing spectacular about the place. She's just a small town girl living in a lonely world. Look at, uh, oh, some of these sinners knowing that song. Anyway, um, <clears throat> And then the text tells us, though, something else about her, and this is significant. She's a small-town girl, but she's also a virgin. And that little piece of information is going to come into play a little bit more significantly later. But right now, it tells us a lot about her. Uh, it tells us two things. The, the first thing it tells us is that, you know, obviously she had never had sex with a man. A virgin, by definition, is somebody who has not had sexual relations with somebody else. And so, so we know this about Mary, but... But what that would also mean is, see, in our context, um, it, this might not mean as much, but in that context, it, it spoke volumes. You see, there were only two types of people <clears throat> in Jesus' day. There was the single pe person, there was the married person. You'd have widows as well and widowers, but let's just, primarily you were either single or you were married. And so if you were not married, there was no such thing as premarital sex. Like sex outside of marriage is something that just, it was not done. That's not to say it didn't happen, but it is nothing like we would consider it today or how people view it today. It was just completely off limits. It was almost impossible to, to accomplish because of the community and the setting and the culture. <clears throat> so when we read about Mary being this person, it's talking to us uh, about her, um, her season of life as much as anything else. And so what I like to say whenever I read this is that this verse is telling us that she was a young virgin. It, because if you were a virgin, it means that you weren't married. And the reason why we can say that she was young is because, listen, back then you got married as a young girl somewhere between the ages of 12, 13, and 14. And so if she was not yet married because she was obviously a virgin, that means that Mary is most likely 12, 13, or 14. She's young. Small town girl in an insignificant place, and she's young. 
She's unmarried, but she's somewhere between the ages of 12, 13, or 14. It's really remarkable to, to think about that. Culturally, we're just so different, but I mean, picture this is who Mary is. But notice the text goes on. She is betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. So she's not married, she's young, but she is betrothed. And so what does that mean? We don't have betrothal today, at least within our culture. Typically, somebody dates, they get engaged, and then they get married. In Jesus' day, marriage was a two-step process. A young man saw a young woman that he wanted to marry. He'd go to the family. He's like, here, I'm going to give you some, some money, some resources, whatever it is, because I want to marry your wife. And they would say, great, she's yours, but she's going to live at home here for a year. You will be considered her husband during that time. She will be considered your wife during that time, but you won't have sexual relations with one another. And that year time frame, that year of your betrothal, was when the man would go out, establish his home, and then at the end of the year, he would go and get his bride. They would have a seven-day wedding feast, and then they would consummate their marriage. So Mary and Joseph are somewhere in this window. Everybody views Mary as Joseph's wife. Everybody views Joseph as Mary's husband, but they are not yet officially married. But in the eyes of the world, they're married. It would mean, too, that any child at this point who came from Mary, because they're in the betrothal period, would be viewed as Joseph's, Joseph's child. And, and so this is who we're dealing with, this young girl. And there's one more piece of information that's important for us in this. It says that she was a virgin, verse 27, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. And Joseph was of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So the person that she is marrying can trace his family line back to King David. So she is marrying into the line of King David. Again, you're saying, oh, why is that important? Why is that significant? And again, I'll say, thank you so much for asking. Here's why. Because, remember how I told you that Israel has been anticipating its Redeemer. It's been anticipating its promised Messiah. Well, one of the conditions for the promised Messiah would be that he would be a descendant of David, the deliverer, the rescuer for humanity. The rescuer for the people of God would have to descend from David's line. That was one of the things that had to be fulfilled. So church family, what Luke is doing here is he is laying the groundwork for what's going to come next. He wants us to know that the person Mary is marrying comes from the line of David, which means that any child that, that comes into their family would be considered descended from that line. So that child would check the box. They would fit the criteria for fulfilling David's line and so everything here is, is setting all of this up for us. Now, at the time that this was all taking place, there's no son of David on the throne. In fact, let me see if you remember, who currently is considered the king of the Jews? Who remembers? Herod, right? So, so this false king is on the throne. So it's not a really big deal to be from the line of David except for what I just told you that it is from David's line that the promised deliverer would come. So look at what happens next in the text, verse 28. We've got the messenger. We understand who the message is going to, and then we get to it in verse 28. And he, the angel Gabriel, came near to her, that is Mary, and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, if you remember, 
when Gabriel appeared to Zechariah in our text last week there in the temple, Zechariah was freaked out, you know? I told you the story of how, you know, one time I was in a chapel doing a Bible study with my friend by ourselves and we were there for like an hour when all of a sudden somebody popped up off the floor and walked out of the chapel. We didn't know that they were there. They were laying and, and praying or doing whatever the entire time we were there. Freaked us out. The angel freaked out Gabriel. Or I said, Gabriel freaked out Zechariah last week. But this week, we're going to see something. He doesn't freak out Mary in the way that we would think. In fact, he starts with this greeting. He says, oh, you, he says, greetings, oh, favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, when he gives that greeting, church, I want you to understand something. We can hear this and we can think, oh, that's just a casual greeting. He's just trying to ease her into what's about to, to come. But there's some deep theology here that I don't want us to rush past. He says that she is favored with God. And she says, and he says that God is with her. Now, church, do you know what it means, what that word favored means in this context? To be favored, this was a word that was used in relationship between a king and his subjects. It was a word that was used to refer to when a subject of a king was acceptable to the king. So when, when Gabriel says, greetings, Mary, you are found acceptable to God. He's not coming in and he's saying, hey, Mary, you're God's favorite. He really likes you. You see, for Mary to hear that she has found acceptable to God would have been a stunning statement because what the Jewish people believed and what we need to understand and believe is that God is holy and he is sovereign and he's the king over all. And if an angel shows up as a messenger from God coming to Mary, he's coming as a messenger from God speaking to her and she's thinking to herself this time, how can this be? How can I receive a message from God who is holy, who is, who is separate from us by that curtain in the temple? Like, like as a woman, she could only go into the court of women. She couldn't even go into the place where the sacrifices were altered. And yet now here, God is coming to speak to her. See, don't run past this. Because what Gabriel is saying is, Mary, you have been found acceptable to God. And the question is, how is that possible? Was it because she was better than all the little girls at that time? Was it because she had done all the things that God wanted her to do? Listen, we talked about this last week. It's the same thing with Zechariah. There is none righteous, no, not what? One. So, so how, can, how can a Mary, how can a Zechariah, how can an Elizabeth find favor in the eyes of God? The answer is very simply this. Mary was a recipient of God's grace. It was God's grace. God was coming to Mary because God was choosing to show his grace to her. He was coming to be in the presence of Mary through his messenger, not because there was something special or better with her, but because God, like he did with Abraham, God, like he did with Joseph, God, like he did with Moses, God, like he did with even King David, God, like he did over and over again, he comes to people out of his grace to call them into the things that he desires for for them, and that's what he's doing with Mary. And we know that this is exactly what Mary is thinking. You know why we know that? Look at what comes next. Verse 29, <clears throat> but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Pause there for a minute. Does it say that she was troubled by the presence of the angel? 
Was she troubled by seeing the angel? Is that what it says? No, it's all about the things that he said to her. She's not afraid of the angel. She's not afraid of the scenario. She's troubled by how can this be? She gets what we don't get, which is how could God come and speak to someone like me? And so guess what the angel has to do? Well, look, verse 30. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Mary knew the story of Isaiah when Isaiah came into the presence of God in the temple. Isaiah falls down and says, woe is me, I'm undone for I'm a man of unclean lips. Like in the presence of God, in the presence of his messengers, we shouldn't be able to receive anything good from the Lord because of our sin. Yet, yet when he comes in, he says, no, no, but don't worry. You're a recipient of God's grace. He's found you acceptable and that is why I am coming to you. It's not because of anything that she has done, but it's all of God's grace towards the undeserving. And this is the message of the scriptures over and over again. And then it's in light of that that he comes and he gives the message. Here it is, verse 31. With that all said and done, he says, Behold, you, Mary, will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name, what church? Jesus. You've heard this before, right? This is, this is, this is Christmas time, right? This is a story. But, but for us who are reading the Gospel of Luke, this isn't just the story of Christmas. This is the story. This is the first pronouncement in Luke's Gospel of who Jesus Christ actually is, and it starts with his name. The message is simple. You will have a son, Jesus. The message is simple. But here's where it gets profound. It starts with his name. The name Jesus was, in many ways, a common name at that time. It's a derivative of the name Joshua. So Yeshua, the name which means God saves. In the case of other boys in Jesus' day, it was just a, a proclamation of a truth. God saves. In the case of Jesus, though, that name had meaning. It was a proclamation of what he would do. He would be the savior of God's people. This is the first thing that we see in the story and what's being communicated to us. That which you are going to conceive in your womb will be the savior of God's people. Whoever you are gonna understand your son to be, whoever we are going to view Jesus as, his name being Jesus is intended to draw us in, in <clears throat> to the purpose for which he would come, to save God's people. Don't miss this church. And then we begin to understand how, or I should say why, he is able to be the savior of God's people. And this is what is so fun for me, what comes next. Are you ready? Look at this, verse 32. I'm gonna read 32 and 33, and then we're gonna break it apart. He says next, he, that is Jesus, God's savior, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord, God, will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Right here, church, the angel lays out for Mary and lays out for us this clear picture of Jesus, who he is and what he came to do. The very first thing that he says, this is so fun for me, is he says, he will be what? Do you see it? Great. He will be great. Now, what I love so much about this is everybody thinks their child is great when they're first born, right? You know, look at my baby. Isn't he great? Isn't she great? 
like, you know, you show off your child. They're great. But that's not what's being talked about here. In fact, Gabriel, when he went to Zechariah, told Zechariah that his son John would be great. Do you remember this? But there was a difference. When he came to Zechariah and he said, your child John will be great, he said he will be great before the Lord. There was a modifier. Here's how he will be great. He will be great before the Lord. Meaning he will do things for the Lord which will be great. But is there a modifier with Jesus? It just simply says that he will be great. That is so significant. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, whenever this word for great is used without a modifier, such as he will be great before the Lord or he will be great like so-and-so, it is only used in reference to God himself. <clears throat> so you know what's happening here? It's not that Jesus will be great. It's not just that you're really going to like your kid. Your child will be the exalted one. Your child will be the one without equal. That's what Gabriel is saying. He will be the great one. Now, church, track with me on this one. If he's saying that Jesus will be the great one, how many great ones can there be in our universe? There can only be one. And up to this point in all of Jewish history, who is the only great one? God himself. Do you see what he's, what, what's being set up here? Whatever you to think about Jesus, he is the exalted one, the one without equal. The only person without equal in our universe is God himself. Mary, your son, is going to be God. And just in case you don't understand that that's what I'm getting at here, look at what he says next to her. He says, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. <laughs> there you go. Like if, who is the most high, church? God. And so, so, who is Jesus then? He is the son of God. This is something that is so unique. This is something without, without parallel. The one that will be conceived in Mary's womb, the one who is coming, named Jesus, he will be one without equal, and he will be one without equal because he will be none other than the son of God by ways and means only known to God himself. The mystery that is impossible for even our minds to get around, Jesus will be God incarnate. And just to show you that this is the fact, that this is who Jesus will be, not just the one without equal, but the son of God himself. Look down at verse 35. At the end of the story, we'll get there. Verse 35, the angel answered her. He has to reaffirm the message. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. This is who Jesus is. God come in flesh. This is a proclamation, church, about the deity of Jesus. Whoever you are going to understand Jesus to be, you have to understand that he's one without equal, and he's one without equal because he's God himself. He's God come down. This is what Jesus taught and proclaimed. This is what all the Gospels record of his life. This is what all the New Testament authors proclaim. When you're thinking about Jesus... You are thinking about God in the flesh. You can't take him any other way. You can't take Jesus based upon what is proclaimed in the word about him as somebody who's just <clears throat> a guru, a good teacher, a philosopher. He won't be taken that way. He is God come in the flesh. 
And if I can just sit for one quick moment on like why this matters to us. There's a lot of reasons, but something that just really sat on my heart today, I should say this week while I was preparing this, was this idea of God taking on flesh. I don't know how your week went. I don't know how your month has been. I don't know how your year has been. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there can be times where circumstances and hardships can make it seem as though God is distant and far off. It can make it seem as though God doesn't really care about the day-to-day that's happening in our lives. Because if he did, then such and such would not be happening. Am I the only one that's ever felt that way? (laughs) Okay. A passage like this matters for my heart and it matters for your heart when we find ourselves in that place. Because this is a proclamation that when you think about Jesus, he's God who came down to earth, left heaven's glory, left heaven's throne. He did not stay distant, but he drew near, and he drew so near that he took on flesh. And for a period of time, he lived in this world in human flesh, living the life that we should have lived and then dying the death we deserved to die. Why? To draw us near to God. So your circumstances, my circumstances, the things happening in our life can make it seem as though God is actually distant from us. But the truth is, if you really know Jesus to be who he was, you know that God is not distant from us. He did everything necessary even taking on human flesh to draw near to humanity to draw us back into relationship with God. Um, you guys get this. The first hour I didn't get this. Literally in between the services, I, I was just checking my phone and I got a message from somebody who lives in a different country and just reached out to me and he said, he said, hey, I got a question for you. Um, how do you minister to somebody with stage four cancer? I'm like, I'm getting ready to preach the second service. Can I talk to you afterwards? <laughs> But this is a brother in the Lord. And so as I was communicating just with him, just having just preached this message, I said, one of the things I asked is, you know, is this person a believer or not? Because if we're a believer in the midst of those circumstances where stage four cancer can make it feel like, like, God, you're not near. Yes, those circumstances can make it seem this way. But the truth is God took on flesh. The son of God came down. And because he did, we can have relationship with the Father. And there's an intimacy that is often lost if we don't reflect on the truth that we see proclaimed about who Jesus is. Now, church, no sooner do I draw your attention to that than I gotta take us back up a little bit because it says that not only, not only will he be the exalted one and the God who came near because he is the son of God, but look at what verse 32 says. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no what? And now we draw back into why, why us knowing that Mary was marrying into Joseph's family line is so important because this one who is coming, yes, he's going to be God come in the flesh because he's God's son He's going to be God incarnate, but he is going to be the promised redeemer. You don't have to wait anymore. You don't have to guess at who's going to sit on the throne of David. Mary, your son is going to be that one. 
Now at this time, I'm telling you, they were thinking that the deliverer, the one who would sit on the throne, would rescue them from the Romans. But church, praise God that Jesus just didn't rescue the Jews from the Romans. Praise God that the reason why he came was not just to deal with the geopolitical situation of that time. Praise God that the king who came, the reason why Jesus came down was to conquer the greatest foe, and it's why he can reign forever, because he conquered sin and death and hell. And this... This is who Jesus will be, and so he will sit on this throne forever. So whatever, whatever we got to think about Jesus, again, you got to say, when he came, he came to rule and reign. Yes, he came to draw us to God. He took on flesh for us, but make no mistake, the work that he accomplished established him as the one who reigns as ruler over all things. The Jesus that we can come to, the Jesus that drew near, is also the Jesus that we must accept as the king over all. He is the eternal promised king. Which means that, consider your circumstances in your life today. If you're in Jesus Christ, if he is for you your savior, then he reigns supreme over all. There's not one aspect of what's happening in the world where Jesus is sitting back on his throne saying, I had no idea about that. <laughs> He is on his throne and he is accomplishing as the reigning king all of his purposes perfectly. Now one of the challenges for us that we are confronted with is, do I live my life and do I accept him in this role? We like Jesus as a savior, the one who draws near and, and who dies in our place and rises in victory and gives us new life. But Jesus can never just be accepted by you and me as just purely Savior because he is also the reigning king. Your wish, Jesus, should be my command. Living according to your ways and under your reign and your rule is what is most necessary for me to experience the eternal life, the abundant life that you promise. To be a Christian is to accept him in this way. Now, church, let me tell you this. Like, these are big thoughts. Jesus, the eternal promised king. Jesus, the son of God. Jesus, the exalted one. Did Mary comprehend all of this? I don't know how much she comprehended, but she comprehended a lot because look at how she responds to this message. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, for most of my Christian life, I would read that and I would think, she's just like, she's like, well, I'm not married yet. You know, I haven't had sex, so how can I possibly have a baby? That's not the question she's asking. She's not asking the question how conception can come about, right? That's not what she's asking. The question that she's asking is this question right there. It's a question about how can this kind of a child, how can the Son of God incarnate, how can the King David's line come from me and from Joseph? That's her question. She understands that, that this is an unbelievable thing that, that the angel is proclaiming is going to happen to her. This isn't a question of her doubting. This isn't a question of, of her coming and saying, I don't believe this can take place. She is genuinely asking the question, how can a child that you're describing come from somebody like me and somebody like Joseph? Do you know who we are? The reason why we know it's not a question of, of doubting or unbelief is because of how the angel responds. See, see when, when Zechariah questioned Gabriel, he silenced Zechariah because he knew that Zechariah's question came from a place of doubt. 
Mary's question is coming from a place of genuine honesty. How, how can what you're describing come from somebody like us? And so verse 35 says, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. He gives her an explanation. You're right, Mary. This isn't gonna be a child conceived by natural means. It can't be a child conceived by natural means. This child will have a supernatural origin. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, will come upon you and by ways and means known only to God will create in your womb this child who will be everything that I have said it will be. And so therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. That's how this can happen. And then, look at what he says in verse 36. He doesn't just give her an explanation. He gives her a sign, something to, to validate what he has just said. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived, and this is the, notice it, sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Don't you love that last verse? <laughs> for nothing will be impossible with God. Here's the explanation, Mary. I get it. You don't believe it can happen? And the sense of, you know, between you and Joseph, you're right. Like, this is gonna come by means outside of you. God will come upon you by his spirit and you will conceive in this way. And just so you know, so you can have comfort in your heart, your really old cousin who shouldn't be having a child has conceived. In fact, she's six months pregnant. I love that because that would mean that she would be showing at that time. And so lest Mary have any doubts about the pregnancy of Elizabeth, the moment she saw her, as we will see next week, she would have noticed. It's true, everything that the angel has said. And lest again that she think or we think that, that this can't come to pass, for nothing will be impossible with, with God. Now what does Mary do in response to this church? She does what I pray we would do. She does what I pray you and I would do in response to hearing about who Jesus is who he proclaims himself to be, and that is that Mary fully embraced God's word. Her response to the message was that she fully embraced God's word. She believed and embraced God's word. We see it in verse 38. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Don't you love that? What was her posture in response to this? I'm the servant of the Lord. Her response to God saying what he would do in and through her and who her son would be is, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. Church, this right here is what I hope would be true of us. That as we hear the word of God, as we go through the gospel of Luke, as we begin to ascertain from all of these stories who Jesus is and, and what he came to do for us, that this would be our response. That when we hear as we did today, Jesus Christ is the one without equal. That that truth would pause you to think, okay, that, that's nice. No, not that you would say that's nice, that you'd say, if Jesus is the one without equal, and he is, does my heart and does my life reflect that I believe and know that to be true? Because if Jesus is the one without equal, then there can be nothing that is worthy of more of my time and my attention and my worship than him. 
he must have the rightful place above all things. If he is the, the son of God, and he is, then that means my only way of approaching God the Father is through, through him. And so have I set aside my idea that my relationship with the Father is based upon the works I would do, but it instead is based upon the work of the Son coming for me? Too many of us are still trying to climb that ladder to reach acceptance from God rather than believing what God's word says, that Jesus Christ, well, he's the one who came to do that work. And that for you and for me, we would embrace and believe God's word when it says that he is the eternal promised king. Does my life and does my heart reflect that, that I am given fully over to his reign and rule or do I, do I hold back? Am I somebody who questions and, and allows my word and, and what I desire to take preeminence? Mary's response is the response of those who have received the grace of God. And I pray it would be our response. May we be a people who say, we're just servants of the Lord and let it be to us according to God's word because we know him for who he is and what he has done and only, only in and through him is the life and is the joy that we so desire. So to him be the praise and the glory. Let's pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, your word comes to us so good and so sweet even when it is familiar. Lord, we don't have to guess anymore at at what your promise is gonna look like when it's fulfilled. We are not a people who have to wander about in uncertainty. Instead, you have come to us in your son, Jesus Christ, the full revelation of who you are and the full revelation of your plan, and you have made possible the way for us to not only have relationship with you, but the way for us to live the lives for which we were made. And so, Father, for all those times that for those of us who are even in Christ where we fail to embrace and believe what is true about Jesus, we thank you that your forgiveness is right there for us and your grace is sufficient to still call us favored ones. But Lord, help us to walk in the power of your spirit, to live in this world as those who know Jesus to be who he is, to set aside anything in our life that we would be holding up as equal to him. Reveal to us in our hearts and minds any place where we're not allowing Christ to reign as king. And Lord, in, in so doing, Lord, let us be lights. Let us be those who offer the hope because that is what Christ came to do. His name says it all. He is the Savior. And it's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.